so as I talk about 1 Corinthians. And uh, hopefully this will work. Going to have to log in. Okay. There you go. So what I want to do is just kind of give you a, a, a broad general introduction uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians. The city of Corinth uh, in antiquity, I mean 200 years before Christ, was this hustling, bustling Greek pagan city. It was wealthy. It was full of idolatry. It was full of sin and corruption. And it really was the city, the Greek city, that was kind of leading the rebellion against the old Roman Empire. And in 144, give or take, BC, the Romans completely destroyed that city. They leveled it. And it stayed that way for 100 years. And then Julius Caesar, being pretty intelligent, smart guy, realized the strategic importance of the city of Corinth or that area. And so he rebuilt Corinth. Now, in Greece, if you ever have a map and look and you see Athens and you go south, there's this little strip of land called an isthmus. And uh, it is part of the providence of that time of Achaia. And in that little strip of land was where Corinth would be. And that little strip of land separates basically two seas. It separates the Aegean Sea to the west, which would lead to Turkey, and the Ionian Sea to the east, which would lead to Italy. Now, to sail back in those days, to go all the way around the uh, cape down there of Greece was extremely dangerous, and then ships would wreck, and it was hard to do. And it was much easier to really just kind of cut across, but you couldn't just cut across dry land, so... What they would do is there's two tiny little ports and, and, and little cities around Corinth, and it became a bustling uh, sea uh, port area, is you would stop on one side and unload your cargo, and they would carry it to the other side, and then they would load it on another ship, and it would sail off. It was so much cheaper and safer that way. Now, if you had a small ship, they could roll it across that way. And so that's how they did it. Because of this, Corinth became unbelievably wealthy. It was the center of trade. Now, when Julius Caesar reestablished Corinth so they could do the trade, he established it as a Roman colony. So he built it primarily at that, the first, with Roman citizens, retired military guys, slaves who had earned their freedom. They could go and get land for free. They could be there. They could start it up. It was, it was just great. Then others would come. Um, Jews would come. People from other parts of the world would come and settle there. And, and they would be involved in trade, they'd be involved in shipping, they'd be involved in merchant stuff. It just prospered. But it also was, like any seaport that we see even today, center of a great amount of sin. A tremendous amount of sin and immorality and indulgence. And mixed with that was the fact that these were pagan times. I mean, and, and all types of pagan uh, cults and pagan religions would come, and they had temples to Zeus and Apollos and, and Artemis and just any kind of temple you can imagine. There was religion everywhere, but it was all false religion. The Jews came and they had a synagogue, but like in most places, the Jewish synagogue kind of kept to itself. A few of the Gentiles became what we call God-fearers, and they worshiped God, but they were never really allowed to be a part of things. They were sort of outsiders, and that's kind of the world of Corinth when you get to the middle of the first century. AD. Now, at this time, Paul, we know in Acts, had begun a second journey, a journey to start evangelism. He wanted to go back to where his first journey took him in Asia Minor. And he started there, but God, it tells us in Acts, kept closing doors. Then he had a vision of a man from Macedonia, Europe, 
on the very eastern side of Europe and called him to come. And he took us the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he went there and he went to Philippi. And he started a church in Philippi and it was successful. And uh, Acts 16 tells us that. But eventually, as always, the Jews kind of ran him out of town. Then he went to Thessalonica and had success and the Jews ran him out of town. Then he went to Berea and had success and the Jews ran him out of town. And so he left behind Timothy and Silas. And he headed on down to Greece, to Athens. Now, Athens was the cultural elite. Now, it was not necessarily the most prominent city. That was actually Corinth. Corinth was the most prominent, prosperous city. But Athens was the most arrogant in all this philosophy. So he went to Athens, and there he, he worked in the synagogue, and, I mean, taught in the synagogue, and, you know, and, and he had the famous incident on, on Acts 17 on Mars Hills. And he had a little bit of success. Not a lot, but a little bit. And then he left, and he came to Corinth, all by himself, all alone. Acts 18 tells us that he arrived there. So what I'm going to do, before I give you an introduction, I just want to kind of read a little bit about Paul arriving in Corinth in Acts 18. Okay, this is where I told you I don't do well in this stuff. Where did it go? Ah, there it is. Come on. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And there he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. We know when Claudius ordered them to do this, so we know this came after 49 AD. And we know this first journey was in about 51. And he was a tent maker, as they were, and he had worked with them. And so every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Gentiles. So he was with Priscilla and Aquila. In this, they were Jewish. He was Jewish. They were both tent makers. They were probably Christians already. If not, they soon became Christians. Um, and then it says uh, in, in verse 7, uh, they, they kind of kicked him out of the synagogue in verse 6. Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice. He was a worshiper of God. He was a Gentile. Lived next door to the synagogue. Left the synagogue. Went next door <laughs> to, start his, to start his movement. Yeah, that was kind of in your face. Then the synagogue leader named Crispus. In his entire household, believed in the Lord, and they left. So not only does he leave, go next door, the head of the synagogue goes with him. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So church is growing. They're coming. They're coming. They're coming. And then uh, verse 11 tells us Paul stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half teaching them. And uh, the church kind of began to grow. And we see that Paul then began this ministry there at Corinth. And as Paul began the ministry, it began to flourish, and the church grew and grew. Paul stayed there about 18 months. And at 18 months, this church grew, and it reflected almost the entire metropolis of, of Corinth. I mean, th there were some Jewish believers, and there were a lot of Gentiles, and those Gentiles came from a lot of pagan background. One of the things that I have discovered in life is that when people come to faith in Christ— and even if they, you know, they come wholeheartedly, we know they do, there's always still remnants of their past that connect with them. Some of you know that. Some of you came from some tough backgrounds, and those backgrounds always stay with you a little bit. Some of you come from some families that aren't saved, and your family keeps sometimes trying to pull you back in to the world in which they live. And you, you, you oftentimes still have to deal with the things of your past. It was no different for the people of Corinth. Paul left there. And when he left there, he ended up in Ephesus, and he, then he went back to where he was from. He went back um, to Antioch. And then he went back, started his third journey, and ended up in Ephesus. And it's about 44, 54, 55. 
uh, he spends three years in Ephesus. And he gets word of trouble in Corinth that the church in three short years, two and a half years, three years, is an absolute mess. We know that Paul, before he wrote 1 Corinthians, wrote another letter. He tells us in 1 Corinthians. It's the previous letter. Evidently, it didn't do any good. He had reports from Chloe, and it was a letter brought to him from the church about all the ongoing problems. He would write 1 Corinthians in an effort to solve that. Only that didn't work. In 2 Corinthians, we know that he made a second visit that's not recorded in the book of Acts, but he mentions it. It was called a very painful, painful visit. It's a harsh vision. Did no work. Did no good. He wrote a third letter that we don't have called the severe letter. And it may be that in this severe letter, some progress was made. And then he wrote 2 Corinthians. And then we know from Acts, he would make another trip. Paul made three trips to Corinth. He wrote four letters to Corinth, two of which we had, to deal with the problems of the Aryan city. To understand the problems of that city, he wrote 1 Corinthians from Ephesus in about 54, 55. People differ. It's to understand that because it was such, the city was so different, the church was so different. And the problems of that church tended to reflect the diversity within that church. And the fact that the church didn't have a long time to grow in the faith and to mature would lead to the problems as most of the churches struggled with those problems. We know from chapter one that the church has split up into different groups. In fact, if you read 1 Corinthians, and I encourage you this week to sit down and read it. It doesn't take long. I read it again this afternoon. It took me about 30 minutes to read, to read it. You know, and you, you probably over so, so often through this study, just read the whole letter. You need to sit down and read the whole letter to get the feel from it. What you see is just this church is broken in all these different groups. Now, part of the problem was some of them had rejected Paul. They rejected his authority, and they rejected him as an apostle. You see this both in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And they just said, why would we listen to Paul? He's not one of the real original guys. Some, we will find out, were said, I'll follow Peter. Peter, he was a real apostle. There was another guy named Apollos that we see in Acts. He was a believer in God, I mean, a, a convert to Christianity and a believer in Christ. He was an eloquent speaker. He went to Corinth, and he and Paul were friends. But he was such a good speaker. And Paul, by all accounts, really wasn't that good a sleep speaker. We know in, in Acts that he spoke one time, and he went on and on, and Eutychus was up in a window, and he fell asleep, and he fell down and broke his, killed himself. Paul had to go bring him back to life. I don't know if, because he felt guilty or whatever. I put a lot of people to sleep. None have ever died. I got that on Paul. Yeah, one thing on there, There's some... Uh, descriptions of Paul kind of outside scripture the way he spoke and he just he was a great eloquent speaker but Apollos evidently was and so people kind of followed Apollos some said you know they're that spiritual group you see I just follow Jesus there's always a few people in every crowd I'm just Jesus I just got Jesus I don't need anything else and it was just breaking apart and you read through the, the Corinthians the first four chapters he's dealing with this and then you come and you see all this stuff that's going on. And, and, you, and you see that they're suing one another. And you see that, that they got a guy who was taken up with his stepmother. And they haven't done anything about it. They're going, and there's so much immorality has crept into the church. It's almost as if they want to live like they were pagans and still be a follower of Jesus. They want, they want all the benefits of being saved. And then 
All the benefits of living their old pagan life. That happens in the church all the time. All the time there are people who want all the benefits of being saved and still live a different life. That's what they dealt with. And probably nothing sums up just the chaos of this church like the 12, 13th, and 14th chapters of 1 Corinthians. What you see, and, and, some, and, and people have so many different views of what the ultimate issue was, and I get all that. But it really seems that the ultimate issue was that in that church, a group had grown to consider themselves super Christians. And they were a group who spoke in tongues. They were a group who considered themselves spiritually elite. In the 12th chapter, Paul deals with the giftedness that exists, that we're all gifted and all have talents and abilities. In the 13th chapter, he says the most important gift is love. In fact, the secret to really solving the problems the church at Corinth is to reestablish the love that they were to have. Remember what I taught you last summer when Jesus and, uh, taught in uh, uh, John 13? This is the commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is how they'll know you're my disciples, that you love one another. John talks about loving one another. All the gospel apostle writers talk about love. Then the 14th chapter, he deals with the speaking in tongues issue. And he diminishes his importance to remind them of the centrality of speaking the word of God. That would solve the problems if they just listened to him. As an added bonus, Paul, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, deals with one of the great theological issues of, our, of his time and our time. There were some who were denying the resurrection of, uh, resurrection of the dead. Paul said, if you deny the resurrection of the dead, you're denying the resurrection of Jesus also. And so he gives them a whole chapter on the resurrection. And in that chapter, he says, the very beginning, this is the gospel message, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and was buried, rose on the third day according to the scriptures, and was seen again, and he lists them all. Now, before I start in the text, this is just a sidebar. I know of no reputable scholar, there is no reputable scholar that has been mentioned in all the thing, readings and all, whatever. There's no liberal scholar. No scholar that's, you know, on the fence who denies that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. It's probably the most accepted book of Paul. And everybody knows he had to write it about the mid-50s. And in his writing, he puts the definition of the gospel, including the resurrection. We live in a day and age where many of these same scholars and people deny the resurrection of Christ occurred. And one of the popular theories is that the church added it later. When we talk about the church, we don't mean the church in Corinth. We mean the end of the first, start of the second, third century, the church added the resurrection accounts. That, that didn't really happen. Understand this. In 55 AD, Paul wrote that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised three days later according to the scriptures and was seen and everybody, everybody recognizes that Paul wrote that letter in the mid-50s. So by the mid-50s, the church already believed in the resurrection of Jesus. It is one of the, if not the, most attested to facts in the history of the created world. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul, notice what he said. Called us an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. By the way, later on in Acts, Sosthenes <laughs> was beaten up by the Corinthians. He was also a leader of the synagogue. It may be the same Sosthenes, maybe a different one. Paul's writing it. Maybe Sosthenes took it. He says, I am an apostle. So right off the bat, they're questioning 
the authenticity and authority of Paul, Paul says, understand, I am an apostle. In, in 2 Corinthians, he goes into great detail about his apostolic authority. But he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it's by the will of God. It is God who chose him. Apostles don't choose themselves. The Lord chooses them. And so he immediately establishes his credentials as being an apostle. He writes, he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, understand that there's two aspects to the church. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. It means the ones who are called out. It's the gathering. There is the sense of the church at large. We are all part of a universal church. But there is the sense of the church local. Here, the church of God at Corinth carries both connotations. It is the church of God which is expressed at Corinth. Now, I know it's popular in some circles, and I read it about being more ecumenical and all the churches come together and I get all that. I am not a believer of that, and I'm going to tell you why, and I'm just going to be flat blunt with you. There are certain churches that do not teach and preach what we teach and preach, and I do not want lost people to associate what we believe with what they believe. Please understand, I make no bones about it. I won't mention any denominations in deference to some of your past. But there are plenty of churches who have gone down a road, and I dealt with this a lot when I did that sermon series on Jude in the early part of summer, that deny the scriptures, deny Jesus as Lord, believe there are other ways to come to salvation, believe that all roads eventually lead to God. You go on and on and on. And I don't want a person who doesn't know Jesus but needs to know Jesus to confuse who I am and what I believe with that garbage. So I am not one of those guys who say, oh, we're all believing the same thing. Let's come together. I don't want anything to do with them. And I've told one or two that. We, the church of God, those who have been sanctified by Jesus Christ, saints by calling, the word sanctified in saints, same, same basic word. It's the word for holiness, to be sanctified, it's to be set apart, it's to be cleansed. It's a good old-fashioned word that sounds super churchy, so we don't use it much anymore. But to all of us who are followers of Christ are sanctified, set apart, and we continue the process of sanctification throughout our life as a follower of Jesus. We keep a life of set apart. We are saints. Sometimes I'll talk about St. Peter and St. Paul and people, some Baptists get all upset. Those are Catholic terms. No, they're scriptural terms. I could call you a saint, but I'm not going to do that. He says, we're, he says, with all who are in every place, call the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and I. So really he said, I'm running to you, but basically this is for all. Corinthians is a universal letter written to a very specific church. I, I, I find it fascinating when sometimes, I don't hear this much anymore, but I'll hear a certain piety, a certain you know, sanctimonious comment back, we just need to be a New Testament church. Which one? You want to be that one? I promise you this, I don't want to be like the church at Corinth. <laughs> I don't be anything like that. In fact, you may not realize this, but in antiquity, to be called a Corinthian was slain. It was a curse. It was an insult. It wasn't anything to be good about. He says this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. A common salutation. Grace and peace. The favor of God. Grace brings peace with God. To have grace is to be at peace with God. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Now, we're going to go through verse 4 through 9 tonight. 
Unlike Joe, I get you out at 7 o'clock. Joe went over every single night. I don't know why, because Joe cannot help himself. We talk about all times. When Joe's at staff meeting and when he's gone, it's like an hour difference, man, in how long our staff meetings last. Verse 4, then, it's okay to tell him that too. I thank my God always concerning you. Look at this. I thank God. He, he's going to rip these guys, all right? And some of these guys deny his apostolic authority, okay? And they're saying, I don't follow Paul. Why would you follow Paul? Paul says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm thankful you're a follower of Jesus. You know how hard it is to pray that? <laughs> in my, you may find this hard to believe, but in my ministry, I've had many people who in the church do not like me and wish me gone. I have a hard time thanking God for them. I thank God when they leave. I guarantee you. I cannot tell you the number of times. They, thank you, Lord, they're gone. And I never pray that anyone should, would leave. I, I never pray that any of you would ever leave. I don't, I don't want you to ever think that. But if you leave, I may thank God. I don't know. <laughs> he says, you have the grace of God, which was given you Christ. You know, the one thing all true followers of Jesus have is that grace, that beautiful grace. I, I probably do a poor job of emphasizing the importance of grace. Grace is something I could never on my own achieve. I could never on my own obtain. Some of you come from a Catholic background, and I have so many Catholic friends, and I love them. And, and, and the Catholic faith teaches that you get grace through the sacraments, that you earn grace. It then ceases to be grace. Grace is that which I do not deserve and I cannot earn, but God gives me even though I'm a sinner. A sinner. You know why the Reformation is so important? And why Luther and Calvin, and you, you should thank God for what Luther and Calvin, all these people that say, I'm not a Calvinist and all that. Well, you're more Calvinist than you realize, I guarantee you that. Those two guys and others led a revolution that focused on the grace of God. We are saved by grace and only grace through faith and only faith. He says, I thank God. No matter what our differences, you have grace. And then that in verse 5, everything you were enriched in him, he enriched you. He, and, and the new NIV says, you've been enriched in every way with all speech and knowledge. Now, at Corinth, one of the big divisive points was speech and knowledge. We'll see that more later on. That gnosis, one of the, one of, one of the problems always in the early church was this knowledge. Now, I, I've taught before when I taught on 1 John back in the spring about Gnosticism. And there are many who believe that Gnosticism wasn't around the second century. I don't think Gnosticism was around when Paul wrote this. He wrote this 40 years, uh, 35 years before John wrote 1 John. There was a gap. But there has always been, in human history, there has always been, in the religious context, the idea that knowing the right things saves you, makes you right, or elevates you. And Paul will deal with that. But he says, you've been enriched in all speech and knowledge. The right kind of speech, the right kind of knowledge. Next week, we're going to talk, when Paul talks about wisdom, worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. It's a phenomenal thing that he writes. He says, even in verse 6, as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, 
NIV says our testimony concerning Christ. What we said about Christ was confirmed. It was, it was admitted to. What we have said about you is real. We have told others about you. We have let them know about your faith in you and by the grace of God has proved that true. You are not lacking, notice what he says, in any gift. He's going to deal with spiritual gifts, chapter 12. We'll see that next spring, by the way. It's going to take us a while to get through 1 Corinthians. It'll be all, by year, I mean through next May. Meh, sometime like that. He says, you have every gift you need. You wait eagerly for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. NIV says, you wait eagerly for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. The word revelation, apocalypse, the revealing. You know that book, I think... We looked at that this summer. I think I did a little study on that one night that some of you liked and some of you didn't. But regardless, I was correct in what I said. So understand that. <laughs> the idea of revelation is the idea of God revealing. Scripture is revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing himself to us. It's progressive in nature. In other words, in Genesis, you don't see all there is to know. There's no trinity in Genesis, right? It is a a process of time. But you have in the scriptures all the revelation you need. And one of the cool things is we have it in books. We have it on tablets. You know what's so cool? I have like three software programs. And I have a mega software program that has like so many translations. Sometimes I'll just read it in Czechoslovakian because I want to know what it looks like in Czechoslovakian. I don't know anything about Czechoslovakian. I don't even know if that's the right word for the language. But you know what it all is? It is all the revelation of Jesus. Now, this revelation that you are looking for and lacking, waiting eagerly, is when Christ will come. The ultimate revelation of Jesus is the final revelation of Jesus. So you're looking for the gift, waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed, revealed in a big capacity. There's the revealing that comes through Scripture. There's the ultimate revealing at the end. It is a process. This covers all of it. So you're having the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is in written form, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is in the understanding of who he is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which comes at the end. You're not lacking any gift. You wait eagerly. The revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will do this? Also confirm or affirm, keep you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's going to keep you till the very end. One of the, this, one of the important things about being a follower of Christ, and Paul, Paul, this is his introduction. He hadn't even gotten to all the battles they have, but he's, he's smoothing it over early, you know? He's, 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 he just says this, all of us as followers of Christ are kept to the end. We ought not to have battles and disagrees as followers of Jesus. In the end, we're all going to be with him if we're truly a follower. We will all be with him. We're kept. Now, he talks about being kept, you know, to the end, to the final revelation. Uh, and really, that is just the way of speaking that the process of life we go to has a culminating point. And that is the recurrent turn of Christ. He says we'll be kept blameless. Then stay sinless, but blameless. The idea is that in Christ, the forgiveness is there so that we will be without guilt or blame at the end when he comes. Which is good because he's fixing to talk about a whole bunch of things that they are guilty of. <laughs> and he's going to lay it on pretty thick. Then in verse 9, God is faithful 
to whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God, the idea is this, God is faithful to the end. He has called you into that relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord. Notice Paul uses the full title, Jesus Christ our Lord, and even adds the title of son. So Paul here in this introduction begins with his apostolic credential. He's an apostle. He ends with the exalted title of Jesus and says, you are part of that. Now, Paul lays his groundwork out because Paul is going to get very serious about the faults and the sins and the things going wrong in this church. But he wants to start off by making sure that as a follower of Jesus, we understand we've been saved by his grace. He will be revealing himself to us. It ultimately culminates that in the end and that we will enjoy the fellowship with him. So, then I used to let y'all ask questions. So I'll let you ask. You got about one minute and 30 seconds if you want to ask questions. Well, that's always good when there are no questions. So, uh, I'll see you later. Goodbye.